Welcome to Boomeranging, from expat to repat, a podcast that explores the question, what could be so hard about returning home after years living overseas? I'm your host, Margot Anderson, and in each episode, I will sit down with a former Aussie expat to discuss how they survived repatriation and reverse culture shock, how they navigated the logistics of careers, friends, and family to successfully find their new place at home, and all without losing their global spirit. If you have just returned home, are thinking about it, or just love a good yarn told by professional globetrotters, then I have no doubt you'll enjoy meeting this diverse group of Australians. When award-winning international journalist Prue Clark returned home in 2019 after nearly two decades living overseas, little did she or her American-born family know how grounded they would now be. For Prue, the founder of New Narratives, a non-profit organisation supporting investigative journalism in Africa and the Global South, closed borders at the start of COVID were almost manageable. When the world was closed, it didn't matter where you worked, and even running a global organisation from Australia, while tough, was possible, at least over the short term. For her husband, trying to gain traction for his investment career gained in London and New York was difficult and an entirely different story. There is so much to discuss in this podcast episode. I'm interested to talk to Prue about how to balance the family dynamic when it's not just one career to manage back home, but two. And I also want to discuss the impact closed borders will have on global entrepreneurs and careers like hers over the medium to long term. So welcome, Prue. Thank you, Margot. Thank you for doing this. I wish I'd heard this podcast when I first got back. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, we're aiming to get it out there. So, well, uh, where are we chatting with you today? So, um, lockdown in Sydney with my children juggling, um, juggling, juggling workspaces. I think my, my husband's in the car right now. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> You've relegated them outside. Love it. Love it. <laughs> yes, lockdown. We're uh, here in Melbourne, day one of our uh, lockdown five. So, it's a crazy time. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now, you, you've you had an extensive uh, period of time overseas. Um, I'm interested just to hear a little bit of the earlier background. Do you do you think you were always destined for a life overseas? And if so, were, were there early influences that maybe shaped that? You know, I guess so. And I hadn't thought about it until you asked this question. So um, I had a little think about it. And, you know, so I grew up on a, on a farm, a beef cattle farm in, in outside Wingham in northern New South Wales. And, you know, I guess I had a lot of influence, overseas influences in my life. I certainly never went overseas. Um, but my mother, very funny story, my mother was Miss World in Australia's oh. first Miss World in 1968. So she had spent a year, she actually went to Vietnam with Bob Hope um, and she wow. spent a year based in London and travelling around the world. My father went over to be with her um, for some of that period. So, you know, I heard, I grew up, I guess, hearing a lot about the world. Um, my grandfather had been actually a refugee from Northern Ireland when he was 14, from uh, which is 100, 100 years ago he came out. So that was also loomed large in our family. And I was just, I was always obsessed with history and, and just endlessly curious. I majored in, in ancient history. Um, oh, that's such an American term. I did a three in ancient history in, um, in high school and university. And, and uh, I was, you know, just couldn't wait to go and see 
um, ancient Rome and, and all the rest. So, yeah, I think I probably was. I always really wanted to be a foreign correspondent at the ABC. You know, we, we didn't have the internet growing up, so I'd see, you know, ABC yeah. correspondents all over the world. But that was all I ever wanted to do. And I didn't actually get overseas until I was about 25. But then I was done. You know, I was like, so, so and just, just the background, I mean, I actually, I was so lucky. I did become an ABC journalist. Um, I won a cadetship um, in the Sydney newsroom when I was 23 and still hadn't been overseas. And I was such a, such a bumpkin. Yeah. Really, when I think about it. Yeah. But I did this, did this big trip when I was 25. I went to Egypt. I went to Israel. I went to the States. I went all over Europe. And I came back and I honestly, I think I was just dumb and, and I had to go. And, you know, the ABC obviously had 20-something correspondents at the time, but I was a long way from getting a, a, a correspondent post. So I started looking around for opportunities to go. And, you know, I had an undergrad degree, which was not very impressive to anybody. And so then I did a master's degree to try and do better so that I could actually um, maybe get a go to a university overseas. You know, when I think back, I mean, my parents didn't go to university and it was really just, I went to, to Sydney Uni and I had friends who then went to American universities and I was like, I want to do that <laughs> too. <laughs> um, and so I did apply to Columbia University to the Graduate School of Journalism there you know, in uh, in the States, you know, master's degrees in, in almost every field are almost compulsory. So, you know, whereas we think of it as a, a nicety there, it was, you know, I, I, you know, it was very, very serious. Um, and I was one of the only ones who came in who'd actually had journalism experience. But it was just, it was just mind-blowing year. It was incredibly expensive. I only just paid it off last year after 25 years or something. Yeah. Um, thankfully, I got some scholarship money, but um, and it was also that year where the Australian dollar plunged to sort of fifty something US cents, and I left all my money here stupidly. So, that oh, was, no. it was, yeah, it was financially catastrophic. But um, look, America is so dynamic and so intense in every way that you know the journalism school and the journalism there is just on such an incredible level. And the, you, you go to that school, which is you know, bills itself as being the best journalism school in the world. And it's certainly the heartbeat of journalism in America still, you know, with all these giants of journalism. Um, And, you know, I didn't really even understand what giants they were until years later. But but it was an incredible opportunity to really understand the profession and the history and the, the, you know, there's such a deep sense in America and American journalism of, the critical role that journalism plays in democracy. Yeah. And uh, so we dwelt on that, you know, really intensely for a year. And look, the other great thing was I had um, this group of girlfriends from around the world, from Argentina and Iceland and Denmark and, and Mexico and Brazil, and, I, who, you know, I still have them now. We still have a WhatsApp group. We talk over a few days. But we um, – we're in New York in, in 2000, while Sex and the City was still on air. Ah. <laughs> so I love it. We would get together. Oh, my God, it was so great. We would get together once a week and watch the show together while, you know, we were living in that city that, that um, Carrie Bradshaw was living in. And having, you yeah. know, we weren't having that life, but we, we tried. <laughs> we dreamed. And we were so close to the proximity. Um, so it was, it was an incredible year. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you actively chased down your, your path, if you like, and you land there. I mean, you went for what you thought was a year, yeah? Yeah, I did. And the ABC held my job. Um, Amazing. But I, look, I actually, funnily enough, my, my journalism friends will joke, I, I met my Mr. Big in that year. <laughs> Um, I which it. I totally didn't expect, but um, I hope it was easier path than uh, than Carrie Bradshaw's path with Mr. Big. Yeah. I know, no, he was he was Mr. Big in in all the good ways, um, and he he had just started his career, and he was, and this was you know two thousand when there was a lot more money floating around, and yeah. so he had this. Um, he just started his career as a at McKinsey as a, a management consultant, and I, I mean I I tell you this because I still can't believe that this was my life. I was totally broke and I'd go into financial meetings you know for, for financial aid and say you know can you hurry this up because there's a car waiting for me to take me to my business class flight to meet him <laughs> in Europe for the weekend because that you know they had these great deals where I you know I was his partner and so I would I would go to Europe I must have gone wonderful a dozen times in that first year so it was pretty special pretty wild experience (laughs) incredible incredible so I think that's the thing isn't it all of a sudden you know we take the leap and then you know it's not just like the city opens up our whole world opens up Um, and you know I often talk about the saturation of the senses because it's not just food or you know the bars that you find or whatever it's just life it just takes a different dimension um totally. which is incredible yeah so you have 19 years overseas then from the uh, the moments of uh, 2000 and those early times how i know this is a big question but I, I guess i'm interested in how this unfolded because over that time you've worked and reported from 20 plus countries you know for publications such as the washington post the financial times the guardian bbc etc it's taken you to some extraordinary places how did that unfold when were there certain chapters or themes that ran through that that drove that 19 years yeah, look, it's not been a very strategic career when I look back on it. <laughs> I tended to. I think now that I think about it, I was really just following what was most compelling to me at the time. Um, and look, I, you know, the first big moment after I graduated was I mean, A, I was incredibly lucky that I got a job at the Financial Times because one of my professors introduced me to this. Um, this other bloke who has a funny accent like you, I mean, he was joking when I say that, but um, so so Robert Thompson, who, you know, an Australian who was the head of the Financial Times US edition at the time. And so I went to work there and, you know, I'd only been at the FT for a couple of months when 9-11 happened. And I was a, you know, an absolute well-trained ABC news journalist. And so you know, plane went into the building, I'm getting ready to go to work, and, and I just thought it was a small plane. So I went I did that thing that we journalists do, ran towards them, and there were literally hundreds, thousands of people running the other direction, um, and I probably, you know, just had a clue, what, you know, really what I was about to see. So I got down there just as the second plane went in, and I, I was a block away, um, and absolutely harrowing um Mm. people falling out of the buildings and I was only a block away when the building collapsed and so you know I did I had definitely had you know many minutes where I thought I was going to die um and then uh didn't die um (laughs) um and then just had you know this whirlwind next few days um 
where I reported for the Financial Times and Robert um, allowed me to report for the ABC as well. So I was doing sort of around the clock reporting um, and going to, you know, the, the only things to do in those few days were, you know, we were waiting at the hospitals to find the bodies, you know, to find the, the people coming out when they rescued them because everyone was in this mass delusion that there would be hundreds of survivors. And so I would be at the hospitals um, interviewing family members um, who were absolutely distraught and that was really, really difficult. Um, and then I remember going to the Australian consulate in New York and saying, is there any Australian, because 20, 20 Australians died you know, is there any? Are there any family members who want to talk to you? Who want to talk to the ABC? And a woman there called me a ghoul. Yeah, <laughs> I was in a fragile state enough at the time, um, and I think it really, um, you know, it was a, such a wake up call for a, for a young Australian who'd been very sheltered. I remember that moment. There was a policeman in his police car backing away as the building was falling, and I, it dawned on me that there there is no one going to save me here. It was such a revelation to me that there were moments that were out of control. Yeah. And I was completely out of control. So it, it really changed my outlook a lot. I, and I also really realized I didn't want to do news reporting as much as I wanted to actually understand the forces that shaped our world and people and, you know, how had this, this happened? How did so many people hate America that they wanted to do this? And so by this time, I'm engaged. Um, Mr. Big Lee. So, you know, the, to Mr. Big, Mr. Big, and the recurring theme, you know, of, of our lives, in the, you know, the 19 years after that was juggling our careers. And, and uh, actually, Robert asked me if I wanted to go and report for the Financial Times in Southeast Asia, which I, I was like, yes, <laughs> when I even started packing. And then Eric was like, actually, I can't just head off to the Philippines right now. So um, I took a job. I just had to go somewhere, and I took a job that that came up um, working with journalists in Ghana in West Africa, right? For six months, and so he could um, go to Ghana. He, well, he couldn't go to Ghana, so right, I went okay. by myself. Yeah. And we were newly married, and he is um, an Italian American. And if um, you know, you watched the the Godfather and and the Sopranos. Um, my in-laws won't hear this, I'm sure, but um, it was, it, they're very, you know, it's a very family-oriented culture. So he could not fathom that I was going to head off for six months without him anywhere. <laughs> and he thought I was trying to leave him. It was a very difficult time for him, but he did come and visit me a couple of times. But it was, it was an absolutely life-changing experience. And I just found there were so many amazing stories and I, I spent the next six years reporting from Africa primarily, though I reported from – I also went to um, Arche the year after the um, the earthquake. I reported on um, asylum in Australia and, and also Aboriginal Australia at the time. So this is in the years sort of 2004 to 2008. Went to eastern Congo to the war zones there, spent a lot of time in Liberia, which had just come out of a you know 15-year horrific civil war. Mind blowing, absolutely life changing, really traumatizing stuff. Mm. Um, but in, you know, an incredible experience for me. So I would spend sort of three months of the year in overseas reporting for American radio, Canadian radio. I did some stuff for the ABC, but also a lot of print for Robert Thompson had then become the head of the Times of London. So I did some print for them. So I, you know, I'd been a TV reporter and I sort of 
taught myself to be a radio print reporter, and it was it was really amazing five years. Extraordinary. Um, yeah, and then look, life hits me again. I I'm 34. About time to have a baby. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Got that done. Got that done. And you're back in America. Back in America. Back in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, my I remember my doctor saying, "It's fine. You'll go back three months after you've had the baby." And then I had the baby and realized that she never had a baby, and that was totally unrealistic. And so um, <laughs> I I was grounded for a little while with him, which was fantastic and great he just yep. turned 13 today actually so um, oh, it's amazing to think to think what's happened in that time um while I was grounded I did two things one of them was start teaching at the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism and it's a public university in New York geared towards actually trying to diversify the media especially with with first generation and you know people people not unlike me whose parents hadn't gone to university so it was a it's a phenomenal journalism school and i i had you know all these incredible students who you know were were first generations or african american i had a, a lot of students i mean i've got one who's the new york times correspondent in Wash- in, in afghanistan right now so my heart is oh, in my throat every day yeah um, another another who sadly disappeared into china after trying to get um to get asylum in the US for years. So, you know, I've been, I've made contact with him, but he's not able to be in contact with with us and his classmates and that's been gutting. So, so it was, it was an incredible experience. I took the students to Israel and, and the West Bank for a couple of years. They interned in 60 countries around the world. I mean, today I'm just thinking about the, the Turkish coup five years ago and one of them, 23 years of age, was actually in Turkey interning during this attempted coup. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that was life-changing for him, you can imagine. So it was it, that yeah. was also fantastic. And the other crazy thing I did at this time was decide to um, – that me doing reporting overseas for audiences overseas was not actually really helping that much in Africa, that the change that needed to happen needed to happen, be driven by the people, and they didn't have good information. And so I really decided that I was better off trying to help them you know, bringing my resources or anything I could to help them actually do a better job of telling stories. So anyway, I dived into that with some funding, amazingly, from some friends in New York um, who gave me a quarter of a million dollars. Like, I mean, again, very New York story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, very often here, I'm sure, but but they, um, they really saw... Um, your vision to, and yeah, what you yeah, want to do. And they wanted to do something, you know, helpful for poor people struggling in, in Africa. So um, I started New Narratives in 2010. At the same time, Eric was moved to London to be an executive at Christie's, the auction house. So we, we lived there. We lived in London for three years. At that time, I was running you know, the New Narratives part-time. I also joined the BBC and... Ebola happened in Liberia, yeah. which was where New Narratives was working. So I was running programming for the BBC in those Ebola impacted areas. So I, I went, I went to um, Liberia during the Ebola crisis and Sierra Leone. So that was, yeah, that was also mind blowing. And and at this stage, I've had a, a second child, uh, Aurelia, who's now eight. Um, yes. And then I was offered. A, the job heading the department, the international reporting department back in CUNY in New York, and that just seemed like such a great opportunity. So we 
packed up and moved back to New York again. And so, you know, for the next five years after that, I was running new narratives coming and going from Africa again. You know, I think, you know, I was on a plane once every two months. I was probably on the road two two months of every year, um, which, you know, I've just got the best family that (laughs) had allowed that. (laughs) Mr. Big really has uh, come through there. (laughs) Yeah, he's stepped up. He's definitely stepped up. so, and he's learned a lot, obviously, along the way. Um, I mean, gosh, you know, you're on a plane all the time. You must feel incredibly grounded with all that's unfolded in the last 18 months. But I'm interested, um, in that 19 years, did Australia ever factor as a place that you would either choose to come back to or find yourself grounded in? It didn't. Um And, I mean, early on, probably, um, but after, you know, after a few years, you know, New York is such a little cauldron, you become a New Yorker, you know, and you can't imagine living anywhere else without that intensity and everywhere seems really slow, you know. Yeah. Um, So there was that, but also, you know, I didn't really have any contacts in media here anymore. So, so, you know, just didn't make career sense. But also, you know, look, I want to be frank that, Part of the reason I left was because I did feel, had spent a lot of time in misogynist cultures that felt very misogynistic. And I felt as a woman that I was always going to be held back here. And so that was a, that was a factor. I just didn't, you know, you don't, look, I don't want to, obviously New York has problems, but it's, an, it's yeah. it is, it is the most, and, and, and I don't want to say Australia is the worst, worse than Europe and the UK. I don't think so. Um, no, but, no. It was, you know, New York is is a is a very progressive city, and you know, I had just I hadn't had to have up my defences for a long time, um, and I felt like I was judged on my merits, yep, um, rather than other factors. Yeah, and I mean, look, New York is one of those those cities. I mean, it's just so big the opportunities are so vast the diversity in the city and how it comes together and plays together is just so rich um it's something that i don't think you yeah. see on the scale here um you know so no uh, people don't don't understand america here and i look and i think the other th- one thing i want to say that's really important is america's mission statement i'm a big believer in mission statements yeah yeah <laughs> yeah america's is mission statement is to continually improve i mean i think we see it as a bit of a cliche but they really do think of themselves as an experiment and you know they constantly talk about aspiring to the better angels of their nature, um, which I think Abraham Lincoln said in you know in eighteen sixties. Um, they they there are those stirring words in the in the independence the Declaration of Independence from the from the UK, um, from Jefferson's words in the Constitution. They believe it, and they want to keep improving their society. And I think it's important. Yeah, and I, I think you see that how that um, culture of entrepreneurialism is so fostered there. You know, um, it is such a um, a playground for for that thinking and for that evolution to happen, and the support for that for that thinking. Yeah, it's it's make mistakes, break it. They're constant. How can I work with you? And and it's yeah, it's it's really it's um, energizing and exciting to be in. So in 2019, you return home, um, which is just pre-COVID. Yeah. You are able to run your business, New Narratives, effectively from here because you can still travel from here at the time. So actually, let, let me let me stop you because um, 
two things happened. We were, you know, we were in Trump's America at the time, which was really terrifying. And also, you know, let's be very clear that Trump was elected with 25% of the American vote. He, um, the American electorate, he never got nearly as much support as Barack Obama. So, you know, that Barack Obama America was was where we were happy. But when when it, you know, you started to see this um, minority, an ugly minority, whipped up by this information, we now know this amazing yeah, yeah. piece that came out from that Russia was manipulating it. I mean, Russia's role in, in Trump's rise and America's demise is is really under undertold. So it was very um, it was it was difficult. The health insurance system is is a debacle, um, and and also the the guns thing, you know, in New York, um, you are removed from the guns to, to a large extent. The gun laws in New York State are much um, stricter. You can't carry guns across line across state lines, but they were doing um, lockdown drills in schools, which are never mm. discussed with us, and you know, just seemed to create unnecessary stress for the children. And so my kindergartner came home and said, I really love Miss her teacher, Mrs. Claus, because she keeps us safe, you know, from, you know, random shooters coming into the building. And they would lock them in their, you know, in their closet at the back and turn the lights out and pretend, you know, that they weren't there. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, so that was a big driver. The other thing was I was I, I came back for a job. And we did thought yeah. about I did, yeah. So I came back because um a Judith Nelson Institute had um just been announced. Mm-hmm. Judith Nelson had committed a hundred million dollars to um support journalism in Australia. And this is you know, I've spent my whole career um in donor funded journalism. Philanthropy and journalism is huge in America, and so um, I really thought thought that it could have a very big impact in Australia. It was very exciting to be involved in that, and and also, you know, my kids were um, six and ten; they didn't really know Australian family, so it just seemed like such an amazing opportunity. It was really hard. My my husband didn't want to come. Yeah, I was going to have to step away from new narratives and hand it over to other people to run, which was really hard to do because it was it was growing and doing great work. So it was a very very hard decision, but the the opportunity to be in Australia to have you know to do something that I felt was really important that I could I had the skills and experience to bring um, was fantastic, and and they made it very financially appealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you you come home with the job. I mean, and yeah. you know, career has been very important to your husband too. I'm interested. What challenges did he face? You know, looking for opportunities here in Australia or translating his experience. So, um, you know, he got here just before COVID, which was yep. really really tough. Um, I think he took a while to meet the right people that that mm-hmm. he who were going to value his experience. He. Um, was lucky to do. He did some consulting through the pandemic for uh, for Westpac and and others. He's had a lot of good conversations. You know, he's in private equity and investment. You know, at first his 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 main area was in um, diverse as, asset classes, so um, art related businesses. And you know, of course, Australia, Australia is way less diverse in terms of a- asset allocation. So um, he's now you know, much more in um, advisory and private equity investment fields. And it's very American. You know, there are a lot of Australians who 
spent a lot of time over there, or actually a lot of Americans. So I think he feels like he's now in the right world, and I think that that world actually does appreciate his skills. Yeah, fantastic. And so he he actually really does want to stay and and, and make a go of it. Yeah, brilliant. So you've led foundations, including the one that you've spoken about, um, New Narratives, started in 2010, I think you said. You've done that then for a number of years, including during COVID from Australia. So how have you worked this, particularly for the business, which focuses on building news media um, in low-income countries? How, how's, how's that operated from here? So, you know, uh, after I... I spent uh, nearly two years with Jay and I. I left, and you know, we decided to that I would run new narratives from here. It has been harder than I thought, partly because they were able to travel. You know, as journalists, they were designated as um, they were able to travel to Europe, uh, and they were also in from an NGO. So they had two two ways ways that they were able to travel. They um, we did a lot of work on covering war crimes trials in Europe. Um, you know, my donors. My donors didn't travel, but the donors, you know, are in Europe and America, and that that has hurt me. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the the real test will come now. I think where um, the world is opening back up, and and they are traveling. There are a lot of important conferences that I would normally be at, and of course, I can't go to them. Yeah. So they're happening online, and for a long time, it was. It was, you know, it was. I was, you know, in the middle, up in the middle of the night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One AM call. <laughs> oh, there's a lot, a lot of that. Or oh, six AM editing. That was the yeah. worst thing. I'd wake up in the morning to have to edit a, a story from a war crimes trial in a very bad mood. <laughs> I think my journalists are like, wow. <laughs> um, but. Um, <clears throat> You know, now I, I I am worried because I do think that there is a. I mean, there were moments where I would tell my European colleagues, "I can't, I can't, I literally can't leave the country," and they didn't believe me. Um, now it's going to be very hard to believe. I think so. We'll see. Yeah, it's a major risk, isn't it? You know, um, that we we just fall off the radar, so we become out of sight, out of mind, um, because we can't show up. Yeah, um, when you are so isolated physically you need to you need to be in their faces you need to be reminding them that you can be available you know anytime so there's a lot more work that we have to do to do that but you know it's doable it's it's very doable it is yeah we just have to like I mean look the time barriers the time clocks sorry our international time zones are cruel to Australia and New Zealand it's it's just it is one of the realities we have to face so um yeah no, and look, and, and it's but it's also the fault of Europe and America because we're Asian time zone, right? And they yeah. cut, so it's not just us; <laughs> they cut out, you know, half the world's population. So it'd be nice if they worked on that as well. Yeah, we have to keep <laughs> we have to keep banging the drum. So, <laughs> so as an innovator in in journalism, I mean, what opportunities do you think or hope to see come out of COVID and the, the, the disruption that's happened? Well, you know, look, journalism is going is still going through huge um, turmoil and changes. I think in Australian journalism, we didn't have that same death moment that 
media in America and Europe had in 2008 during the during the recession. I mean, there's a there's an upside to to a recession, yeah. and it really forced a lot of innovation to happen in the states ten years ago in media. And they're a long way ahead of us in lots of ways. Um, they've you know media like the Washington Post and uh, the New York Times and the Guardian. The BBC, even though it's government-funded, to, to and, and National Public Radio in the US, they really turned their models upside down, and they, you know, very much focused on reader revenue, reader-generated reader revenue, and also really high-quality products. So yeah. they they know that their journalism, if they're going to get people to pay for journalism now, um, they have to be indispensable, and so they have gone all out to make sure that those. Their journalism is extraordinary, right? So it protects the integrity of the craft, doesn't it, you know, or the profession? Exactly, yeah. And we see that in the, the podcasts. You know, I don't know anyone under 40 who isn't listening to, you know, a million American podcasts. Um, and, and then, you know, now now they're, you know, all these journalists are leaving the New York Times and studying their substacks and whatever. So journalism's in this huge turmoil. It's happening here, though, though further behind. We're going to see a lot more of that. But, look, I definitely – we were going to have to stop travelling as much anyway because, you know, even in Europe now, I, I, I don't think we see that as much here, but there's such a focus on uh, environmental concerns there, you know, green conferences. I think Europe, you know, in the next couple of years was going to dramatically limit travel to conferences anyway. So I think those forces are, are accelerating, which is obviously a huge advantage for us. So I do see those those sort of innovations. I think COVID has, you know, obviously remote work. Apps, you know, I, I, I was just looking at um, Quartz Media in New York. Exactly zero of their staff wants to come back to the office. Yeah. <laughs> in a yeah, survey. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, things are so dramatically different in the States now in terms of um, where you where you are. All the job listings I see, they say remote, totally fine. Um as long as you're based in the US, they just want you on the same time zone. Problem, but <laughs> do, you, do you think our Australian industry or industry of journalism looks then to the US and to Europe um, for learnings? Because if if it's acknowledged that they went through this disruption in 2008 or you know some time ago, are, are we looking to to glean some of that and apply it? Do you think or some are. Yeah. Some savvy, very savvy media that you know you're hearing more and more from are looking to the states, but generally, you know, Australian media looks to Europe and especially the UK, which has been slower and more conservative, especially on the technology innovation. There is not enough um, appreciation of what's happening in, in American media here, which I think I think is a shame, um, and we'll pay a price for that. Um, I think Australian media is is a sitting duck for American media to take audience share, so that's that's a big problem. Um, yeah, and there's, there is there's definitely a, a resistance to America here. Yeah, uh, and that's that's not exclusive to to journalism either. You know, that's that's um, across the board. I think it's interesting because when I talk to our returning expat community, one of the things that they really miss is the is the media from where they've returned from and the diversity and richness of, I, I guess, different mediums and and quality. Um, so it comes up time and time again, which is 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 interesting. How do you think Australia benefits from having up to one 
million Australians offshore at any given time, obviously in a non-COVID year, but that live and work overseas. You know, what, what do we gain as a country? You know, not as much as we we could and should, but the, the branding is phenomenal. Everyone knows Australians that they've had, you know, good experiences with. So I think that's really important. And, you know, Australians are at the highest levels in so many fields. Um, and, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of visibility. I think that we are less aware of how there are things that are damaging the brand. The asylum seeker policy in the human rights community that I work in, they use the term racist, you know, that is in the human rights, in the human rights community, which is, is big. It's a big world uh, and, and in aid and development circles. Um, and also I think we get blame for Fox News, which has been an you know, incredibly destructive force in America. But praise as well. I mean, I was at a barbecue with a Trump supporter in New Jersey a couple of years ago and he was saying, I really like Australia. Well, you know, why should just anyone be able to come into their borders? <laughs> You know, they really love their immigration policy. So I, I guess, you know, we're winning praise in certain quarters as well. Um, but, yeah, I do think that the I think the brand is, is being tarnished and um, that's problematic. And I think, yeah, when we think about or we look at the statistics at the moment, you know, if we've got normally a million offshore, half a million have come home during COVID. So we've got a very diluted presence on the world stage. And, wow. you know, I think that that, you know, really, you know, we lose that ambassadorship or we lose that um, that presence offshore. It, it's really damaging because we become even more of an island. You know, we become more insular if we're not careful. Definitely. So, yeah, I think we need to look at ways that our Australian cohorts are promoted overseas, you know, um, because we all win from that. I think so. It's, it's seemed that way. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think too then how do we, you know, this is what we're all about is how do we take that incredible richness of knowledge and experience and networks, et cetera, and leverage it here in Australia when people return. Um, so that challenge of bringing the of building the links is, is just so vital. I agree. Uh, yeah, I'm really interested in terms of life today, what that looks like and, uh, you know, what do you see unfolding? Yeah, I just like everybody, we're just sort of, in holding pattern, I think, and we can't, we don't really have visibility. Um, I was just thinking today, you know, my, my kids, they were so lucky compared with me having never gone anywhere. You know, one one daughter lived on three continents before she turned six, you know, and they've been to so many countries. We were so constantly travelling. One of the appeals about being here was to see Australia, to see Asia, which was too far away to get to from America and Europe. And so, you know, we haven't been able to do that. You know, and also, you know, working out how I'm going to be able to travel. What does travel look like? I mean, I looked at flights um, the other day and it was like $8,000 to get to to West Africa from here, which, you know, my, my donors are not going to, you know, it used to cost $1,500, you know, $2,000. So, so things like that are going to be very problematic. Um, so the cost of doing business, so to speak, you know, absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then and then if we have to do a two week quarantine on the way back, that will be prohibitive. So oh, I'm going to have to make some tough decisions by Christmas about you know whether I can continue to run new narratives from here. That's that's tough, but you know you, you I guess you have to park it like so many people here, and 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 I mean I. Um, 
uh, you know, I think about my um, my mother-in-law, who's you know an Italian Italian American grandmother. <laughs> you know all the stereotypes that go with that, but she, you know, she's very close to her grandkids. Yeah. When we got on a plane two years ago, she didn't think that she was going to go miss years of their life. Yeah, for many of us who go overseas and travel, we do it with the knowledge that we can come home at any given point or if an emergency arises. And sure, we might have one of the longest haul flights, but if something goes wrong, invariably we can be on a plane and home within 24 hours. And I've done that. I actually did that before my grandmother died, you know, once before. Yeah, so it it is, um, it's a totally different world. Yeah, and having, you know, five grand in a bank account somewhere for those emergency flights is just something that you did. But, like, it's not not the five grand anymore and it's not that you can come. No, and my worry is that in, in, you know, even in a year's time, is it 20 grand? Yeah. It looks to me like things aren't going to go back. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, when borders open, I mean, I think then there's that decision of like, oh my gosh, where do we actually want to live in terms of not just our jobs, but lives and connections and et cetera. Um, And it's tough when there's, you know, um, uh, partnerships with with people from other countries and nationalities, because it just becomes that even more complex (laughs) piece. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now, um, Prue, we like to close all of our um, chats with quick five, five quick questions, so I'd love to put those to you today. I guess it's, it's a word or, word or a phrase that comes to mind. Um, first one being living overseas opened my eyes to? Everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so many things. Um, that's not one word, but I think, you know, the key thing is just to really understand that everyone comes from a totally different experience and worldview and that we're all so wired so differently and that we, you know, we have to celebrate that and we have to be understanding. Yeah. Um, there is no point in trying to say, why don't they do things like this? Because they yeah. just don't understand the world the way you do and they never will. Yeah, yeah, great. Expats are good for? You know, keeping us connected to the rest of the world. I mean, I I do worry that Australia is is isolated um, physically, but mentally, and there are so many um, global forums that I'm part of that there are no Australians. So you know, we we lo- Australia loses big time from that. Yeah, the best thing I have discovered since arriving home is my family. Um, you can imagine, you know, being away for 19 years and my, 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 I have two siblings, but they haven't had children yet. So my grand, my kids are the only grandkids. So my dad has spent, you know, quality time with, with his eight, eight and 12 year old grandkids for the first time ever. So that's incredible. But also that just the landmass, how beautiful it is. And when I have been able to travel, (laughs) I went to far North Queensland and that, of course, that was beautiful. And, and to, you know, I live on the beach in Sydney and, you know, it beats Brooklyn every day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, I think like the this country is just phenomenal in its diversity. Oh, it's it's amazing all in one space. Um, yeah. The first thing I'd encourage a new repat to do. Nature. Nice. Plug plug into nature. That's my salve, I suppose, going growing up on a farm, but it's always been really important to me. And look, I hate to say it, I know this is incredibly controversial, but the coffee is not as good as you remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been to Melbourne? I, I 
I had. Okay. <laughs> I bow down to you. You are highly correct. Uh, in Sydney, you have to work a bit harder to get good coffee. <laughs> uh, a word, song or quote that best describes your time overseas? Well, this is hard and I, I, I had to come back to um, I had to come back to Hamilton. I'm an absolute ah, Hamilton obsessive like everybody else. And it's because of that thing that I, you know, it encapsulates what I love about America, the diversity, the optimism. But, you know, it, it's about that it's an experiment and 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 they they live and think about how they can improve their society all the time. And I think Hamilton really sums up what, what an extraordinary thing um, that was and that founding of America and the audacity to kick out the Brits. We never did that, you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's amazing. It's amazing, that musical. It's incredible. And it, and it really, it, it is the, it, you don't see it, but it's the essence of progressive America. It really does hit the core of progressive America, which is so inspiring and energising. Which creates hope, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Prue, I've absolutely loved our chat. I feel like I could talk for another hour, So, <laughs> but we will cut it off there. So thank you again for your time. It's been wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you, Margot, for what you do. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, share it with your friends and family, and subscribe for future episodes. For more information on our guests, please head to our website, insyncnetworkgroup.com, where you can check out the show notes and also find more information about our fabulous community and membership offerings.